0: Welcome, everyone, to Bridgeport Stories. Our show features guests from com- from the community who provide fascinating stories that'll be sure to captivate from urban legends to historic landmarks, exciting new developments, and insider profiles. Prepare to hear it all here on Bridgeport Stories. I'm your host, Frank Boris, and we're recording out of our studio on the west side of the city of Bridgeport. Here on this show, we delve into the unique, interesting, and the inspiring stories about Bridgeport. And by the way, if you guys didn't know that was a song from 1936, during I think it was the uh, centennial. Yeah, it was a centennial celebration of Bridgeport, and so they created this song "Bridgeport by the Sea," and we just jacked it up a little bit for the for 2020. Uh, so uh, that was done by a local artist uh, recently. Today, our guest on the show has a very inspirational story about becoming a leader. Um, at least we hope you're inspired by it. As a Bridgeport native, she's worked on the. Not- in the nonprofit sector for nearly 20 years and has experienced managing multi-million dollar budgets committed to the cause of ending poverty and its root causes. Our guest is here today to share with you what it takes to get to her level. Without further ado, uh, I'd like to introduce Dr. Monette Ferguson. Dr. Ferguson, welcome to Bridgeport Stories. Thank you. Um, Dr. Ferguson, um, one of the first things um, I'd like to uh, talk to you about is... Um, you have had to come in during a transition here at ABCD. Anyone listening to this knows what ABCD is. I remember as, a, as I think it was a high school junior or senior, my first job in journalism was at ABCD. I was in on Stratford Avenue. There was an office somewhere, and they had this printer that I had to hand crank, and we made newsletters. Wow. <laughs> I think they were the first newsletters for ABCD. I, I was looking for one in my boxes in the basement. I couldn't find it. I'm so upset. But anyway, so everyone, uh, most of us go back. So how was that for you? I, I think that's the most uh, the most pressing question that people probably have for you. How was it to transition like that from... The founder and icon doctor, uh, or should I say Charles Tisdale to yourself?
1: So I think it was uh, it was progressive. Um, it mm-hmm. was greatness in the making. I had the opportunity of starting my career early at ABCD as a caseworker, actually as a child in the mm-hmm. program. Uh, I attended preschool at ABCD, so it was very much ingrained in mm-hmm. my family history and in my DNA. As like you, my mom's first job came from ABCD. So we have a deep, rich, rich history with the Community Action Agency. And then to have worked with Mr. Tisdale side by side for years, um, watching him and understanding his political savvy and his um, his greatness as a leader and being able to move into that space is just an honor. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's really right now it's a little surreal. I still can't really get my mind around it. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's definitely a blessing.
0: That's good to hear. Um, people don't know you, uh, and some do. But for those of us who don't know your whole story, uh, where are your parents from? So my
1: mom is um, from North Carolina. Well, her family was born and raised in North Carolina. She was born here in Bridgeport. Um, and my dad was born and raised in North Carolina as well.
0: There was a great migration from North Carolina to Bridgeport in the 40s and in the 50s um and i i'm guessing that may have been part of that migration because of the jobs
1: absolutely so with my mom's family my grandfather brought his family here they were tobacco farmers primarily and he brought his family here um primarily to norwalk cuz there was a shoe factory there really um that was very it was booming it was affluent and um The East Coast was primarily, um, it was about jobs, right? It was everything was about jobs. It was about prosperity. It was about a better life. So that small, he he brought him and his small family, my grandmother and five children here. Um, They quickly moved to Bridgeport um, after, and here we are. My dad was in the military, so he traveled a lot. Um, and on one of his travels, here I am.
0: <laughs> wow. <laughs> so your dad was in the military yeah. during what period?
1: So he was in the military through Vietnam and also in the Gulf. As a matter of fact, he was a paratrooper like his father, as a oh. matter of fact, um, but got sick in the Gulf like so many other soldiers. So you're talking about and your grandfather? Um, no, I'm was I'm talking a- about my father father
0: your father but you say your grandfather was a paratrooper as well
1: his right his dad was a paratrooper it must have been like
0: world war ii or something exactly exactly so you have a history of military
1: absolutely wow On my dad's side yeah and he has well i have cousins that are still active duty now um several he has several brothers and sisters that were also um in the military so that's a family it's a family history on that side
0: so how did you escape that uh that culture? I
1: had no intention <laughs> <laughs> of uh of going that way. Um my family primarily championed education as as a way out, as an opportunity. Um my grandmother from a very young age told us, you know, go to school, get your education because she was undereducated herself, but built what we consider our, uh right now our family empire if you will. Um my grandmother was everything to us. Um so what she really, really pushed forward in all of us, when I say us, myself, my cousins, my my mom, her siblings, my uncles, my aunts, was that education was a really strong way to raise, to raise you out of poverty, to raise you out of um, a lot of issues that come along with being people of color in this nation. And she honestly believed that that would always propel us to the top.
0: So Ferguson is your... Father's last name.
1: Ferguson is my married name.
0: Your married name. I'm sorry. So what is your maiden name? Pierce. Pierce. Okay. And what was your mom's maiden name?
1: It was Pierce. My mother was unmarried.
0: Okay. So Pierce, Mm -hmm. uh, was that a big family? The Pierce family was a big family here? Mm Yes. And where were you raised? Uh, What part of town?
1: So I was Mm -hmm. raised on the South End, but our family was primarily from the East End, Mm -hmm. East Side, Father Panic Village. Um, So we do have some Mm -hmm. relatives that still live on that side of town now.
0: Okay, so East Side, East End, mm-hmm. Father Panic. Well, we have something in common then because I was from the East Side and I walked by Father Panic every day to go to school. So uh, maybe we ran in. No, you're too young. I'm way oh, too you're young. You're way right? too young for me. <laughs> oh, that's true. Let's nice try, that. <laughs> <laughs> I try to make myself younger is what that was all about. Okay, so now we know that you were raised on the East Side. What schools?
1: So I was raised on the South End.
0: In the South End? Yeah,
1: my family, my mom had lived in Father Panic for a short period of time, Um, but we went to Sacred Heart, St. Anthony, always went to private schools. My wife went to Sacred Heart too? Yeah, um, right down Park Avenue, walked down to, um, oh my gosh, I I think at the time it was St. George's um,
0: Parish. Who was the uh, priest at St. Anthony's? Was it Father Nick or? It was Father Prankis. Oh, okay. How do I I remember that? I didn't didn't know him. So isn't it funny how we all have that those little uh, parochial backgrounds? Yeah. Um, and yours was through uh, Sacred Heart. Absolutely. Through Saint Anthony's, which was here on Colorado Avenue.
1: Right. So they yep. So they came together, and then it became Sacred Heart Saint Anthony somehow. Um, and it was awesome. Like I was that kid. Like I was never quiet. I was never. Were well you precocious behaved.
0: and? That's interesting. a great word.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, <laughs> um, of I have three. Tell siblings. us about yourself as a child. <laughs> We'd like Ooh. to know what kind of child you were. I,
1: I was in lots of trouble all the time. Is that um, right? <laughs> all the time, all the time. My mouth. I was a socializer, so now I would be categorized probably as like the Oprah Winfrey uh-huh. of okay. maybe the '80s, but back then it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't cool in a Catholic mm. school classroom when quiet, you know, blessed quietness yes. was the way to go. So, I got into lots of trouble. Looked up several times to see my mm. mom, aunt. Grandma in the doorway, making sure that I was being well-behaved. No kidding. Um, yeah.
0: <laughs> so, but, but what were you known for in class? What did they say? Oh, well, let's get Monette to do this. What would it be?
1: Definitely a leader. I would definitely lead all class projects, all um, routines, dance routines, plays, <laughs> drill team, you name great. it. I was doing it. I was organizing it. I was getting folks together. Um, pretty bossy. Pretty bossy. Um
0: where'd you go to high school?
1: So I went to high school at Laurelton Hall uh-huh. in Milford. My sisters and I all attended Laurelton. Um there we got opportunity, of course. We lived in the projects. In the South End, we lived in I Marina mean, were Village. you Catholic or were you just going Absolutely to Catholic? Absolutely not. Schools? They offered the best opportunity in education at the time. Uh-huh. Parochial schools had been known um for for great educational um opportunities. And and that's we got scholarships because we were hard workers and we were smart kids, um, and that's how we got our opportunity. The
0: eighties were tough here in Bridgeport. The 80s were I was tough. a reporter yeah. here in the eighties when crack epidemic affected our streets, and I, I remember you know reports on people dying and going to jail, and it was just really a, a bad time in Bridgeport. We had like sixty five murders at the top. Wow, uh, what was that like for you as a child or as a kid? Um, living through the 80s and early 90s? I
1: have to tell you, I was fairly insulated. I had a family, a very supportive family. My mom was a hard, is a hard worker, was a hard She's retired now, was a hard worker. My grandmother always saw to it, my aunts and uncles, that we were completely insulated from that type of lifestyle or even getting that type of information. It wasn't like we were not aware of it, but it didn't affect us in a way that, that it impeded our growth. Um, and our opportunity. So we walk to school every single day from arena village to sacred heart, St. Anthony, maybe a couple of blocks under railroad Avenue and never bothered, never solicited, <laughs> never accosted ever for years. Um, it was a sense of neighborhood and community it, one thing I could say was because everybody looked out for everybody. And the other thing was we were just raised in a way that we protected each other. I have, me and my siblings are extremely close to this day because of the way we were raised.
0: Did you have a mentor that you could remember? Somebody that meant a lot to you that, wow, this person really was watching out for me or taught me something that helped me propel into my future.
1: I would have to say there are several women who stand out in my mind. Uh, One is definitely my grandmother. Um, to this day I hear in my ear, um, saying,
0: what uh, was her name?
1: Rena, Rena Pierce. Um, I hear her very clearly deterring me from things that I just want to jump into because that's who I am and uh, cautioning me (laughs) along the way. Um, my aunts, my mom, my sisters, strong, beautiful, Mm. intelligent women that are thriving. Um, some teachers.
0: Where did they, where did they learn that? Um, were they from an agricultural community in, in, uh, or, or an educated community in North Carolina? Uh, where did that come from? Was it just a, an instinct?
1: I would have to say it was an instinct. Cause like the way my grandmother grew up and she was, I would, I would describe it as she was rescued by my grandfather. They married early. They met early. They married and started a family, but she wanted out. She knew there was a better life than picking tobacco in North Carolina. Um, so her savvy and her style, I think it was ingrained.
0: Wow, that's wonderful. Um, and that tell me about high school then. So now you took, first of all, you have this—you're uh, somewhat protected by your parents and your grandparents, and uh, but you're educated and you and you value education. Uh, now you're in high school in a in a in a majority white high school in Milford, Connecticut. What's that experience like for an African-American young woman?
1: Um, I think that's when I probably first realized how different I was and how poor we really were Um, taking the train from Bridgeport to Milford. Even though it was only a couple of stops away, you kind of realize very quickly how your friends have homes and you're going back to, you know, housing, public housing. Um, You never have people over. Um, You never really um, invite friends to do things in your neighborhood because it's different. Um, and it's clearly, clearly, that's when I that probably was one of my first realizations that I lived in poverty. Didn't really understand it. Really
0: never had appreciated before that. Not
1: at all. Not at all. Um, and understood white privilege um mm-hmm. the way it is. Um, not in the way it is now, but the way it was back then. How I had friends that just by pure I guess happenstance had things because of the color of their skin and the way that they were raised and what their parents had, the opportunities that were afforded them by pure nature. Like, that's just the way it was.
0: So you were recognizing things and understanding things. Um, How were you treated? Tell me about the school and what were your experiences like?
1: So I had an older sister that was extremely, she's a model citizen. So (laughs) I was not, so um, I was consistently compared to my sister, my older sister, Renata, who's awesome. Um, and I was happy to be compared to her, but very quickly they realized the difference between me and Renata. <laughs> you were not Renata. Renata. Not at all. <laughs>
0: uh.
1: Not at all. Um, and um, that was rough because the expectation level almost dropped <laughs> immediately. Because um, I was consistently... But you had different skills. Different and challenging. Like... Uh-huh. You know, um, because you said so doesn't mean that's the way it is. And tell me why. You know, and my sister's um, super intelligent, and she she may not push the envelope with the um, institution itself, but she would find out for herself, and she wouldn't make waves, if you will. Um, now she does <laughs> in so many cool ways. But back then, it wasn't cool to make waves. We were on scholarship. You know, we were children of color. I, I think in my graduating class, there were three um, there was a, no four. Okay. So there were two, two Hispanic, Latinx, um, young ladies and two black, mm-hmm. me and, and one of a friend of mine. Um, so what it was, was very, high school like? did
0: you, uh, were you part of music or, or sports or anything, a class leader or anything like that? So
1: Laurelton was interesting. Laurelton had tracks where you, you, that were mandatory. So mo- what most people don't know about me is mm-hmm. I played classical piano, um, because it was a mandatory elective mm-hmm. at Laurelton hall. Um I was voted class president my junior year which was I, I can't say I was the only African American to be in a leadership position as far as like student council but very a very few. Um I was super popular, very very popular and um
0: with the boys too?
1: There were no boys. <laughs> That's is right. That's all girl school. <laughs> Cute friends. <laughs>
0: I was just trying to get some <laughs> stuff there. Okay, go ahead.
1: Um so high school was, it was easy. It was, it was fun. Cause that was my social life. Right. right? Um, right. Cause when we went back home, you know, mm-hmm. you kind of have to take off the uniform, lock the door, do your homework and wait till my mom came home. Cause it wasn't really safe to go out and play. Mm-hmm. And we did that through our teenage years. That's the way we lived. Um, we moved out of the projects. Probably. I have to say maybe it was right before high school. No, was it? Yeah. My mom bought a house in Stratford.
0: Oh wow. And yeah.
1: we moved, um, we moved out of the projects. Um, things really didn't change too much. I mean, we moved to Stratford. It wasn't like we moved somewhere like super affluent. Um, but Stratford was better. It was nicer. Right. We had a neighborhood, there were parks and um things of that nature. And then I made new friends um when we moved as well. But High school. When I look at back on my high school years, they were fun.
0: I mean, uh, to have been voted class president, being one of a great minority of pupils, um, I think that's saying something about you and what was intended, what God intended for you.
1: I appreciate that. Uh,
0: well, I, yeah, I guess that was a <laughs> comment versus a question. No, it's all good. Uh, But uh, what I mean to say, or should I ask? So what happened in high school? What did you think you wanted to do when you left high school?
1: I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, I always wanted to be, clearly I had the ability to be in charge and to lead people and the ability um, to evoke listening in others, which people don't, all people don't have. Um, I was always raised to, to know that I could do anything I put my mind to. I was never discouraged because of color or sex or anything to do anything in life. So if I wanted to be the president of the United States, my grandma would be like, of course, you could be the president of the United States. Like, why would you think you can't be the president of the United States? Um, that's the way I was raised. So leaving high school, um, I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, and that was the plan, but God had another plan.
0: <laughs> Which was what? What happened to you after high school?
1: So I started off my college career at Howard University. Oh, wow. When I got down to D.C., I stayed with family friends that summer before I was to enter school, and my housing fell through. So I had nowhere to live. So I had to forfeit my enrollment at Howard and come back home. Oh, that's awful. So, what yeah, a terrible it's all experience. Right. It's all right. Well, wait a um, second.
0: Let's <laughs> go there because... That must be awful. You get You get a. You you say you got scholarship Mm -hmm. to Howard. You get there. Mm -hmm. You're actually physically in D.C. Absolutely. Ready. You signed up. You're ready to go to class. Ready to go. But you have nowhere to live. Homeless.
1: How does that happen? Um, So I was doing most of this by myself. When I say most of the process, the paperwork. Um, By myself. So I thought I knew it all. And somehow another did not cross all the T's, dot all the I's. And the housing was a piece that I had not fully understood or fully completed. And by the time I got on campus, there was no place left. Um, Even if I were to start the process, I wouldn't be able to move into anyone until the next semester. Was that
0: heartbreaking for you?
1: It was because I love DC. I loved everything about DC. I had a cousin that was a sorority member at um, Bowie State, and we hung together all summer. We had an awesome time, and I was ready. Um, They call DC Chocolate City, and I was just ready.
0: (laughs) You're ready to be there. (laughs) That
1: was where I believed I needed Uh, to be. And so then
0: you had to return.
1: I had to return. So um I came back. I just in time to enroll at Sacred Heart. Sacred Heart um had like late enrollment. They also had housing. They were just building a number of housing units. Um so I was able to move into um housing. I was still right here in Bridgeport, but I didn't want to live at home because I wanted to be an adult. So moved into housing um and met my son's father. Mm-hmm. Right. So then I very soon after became a single parent. Um mm-hmm. And then stopped going to Sacred Heart because it was very expensive. And I had to raise my son and start at Housatonic. And um still still took criminal justice classes at Housatonic while raising my son. And at the same time, probably six months after, I met my current husband, who was my boyfriend for many years back mm-hmm. then. And then life began to turn. That's Larry. <laughs> very quickly. That is Larry. Okay. That is Larry.
0: And so your life started changing. And um, what was the direct, the new direction?
1: The new direction was being a mom, mm. right? So Julian Alexander Octavius wow. Pierce, what a great experience came into the world. Be be yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, And I had, I was clueless. um, and Julian is everything. He always was and always will be, um, in addition to my other children. But I was Julian was the only child for five years, and I was trying to figure it out. So he and I had been through the roughest times. I lived in poverty because I didn't have a good job. I was still trying to figure out my my educational journey. Um,
0: so, Which is kind yeah. of surprising considering what you had been through. Yeah. Uh, high in education, a leader in school, a scholarship to Howard, and now you find yourself in a situation that isn't ideal.
1: Right, right. And I and I have to say, many um, of my peers or my friends found themselves in the same situation earlier. Um, a lot of my friends were teenage moms. I was 20 when I had Julian, so I was mm-hmm. older, mm-hmm. Um, but not knowledgeable at all in parenting. Um, and found myself back um, in Head Start because I enrolled Julian because I needed to work.
0: And you said um, as a child you were in Head Start.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So I found myself actually back at the same Head Start site run by ABCD with the same preschool teacher that I had. She was still working in Head Start. So it was very easy to turn my son over to a woman who cared for me um, and nurtured me at the same age. And I fell in love with Head Start all over again.
0: Is that when you became employed by ABCD? Very
1: shortly after. Um so so in between, again, I was pursuing a criminal justice career. So I became a case manager at an alternative incarceration center here in Bridgeport. Um, loved the theory and the work, but did not did not like the evolving, revolving door that black and brown experienced. I saw young men ages probably 13 to 18 that continued. The recidivism was ridiculous, and there was no plan for these young men. And I had just had a young man. A young black male that I would be that I'd be raising and I couldn't see myself being part of the problem I wanted to be part of the solution so I worked at these programs for a while Um, I continued my education Um, I got an undergrad from UB I got um, a master's degree in criminology and forensic psychology from University of New Haven again on my way to being a lawyer cause I wanted to defend black and Brown. Um, and then again, God had another plan. Right. So in the midst of all this, um, I have more children. I'm, my children are enrolled in HESA. I'm still a low income parent. Um, my children are enrolled in Head Start, and I see this magical transformation that Head Start and community action is doing for parents, just like it did for me, just like it did for mine, um, and it's still real and it's still happening. And I wanted to be a part of that. Um, so the legal, the legal aspect of it wasn't for me at that time. I gained a lot of knowledge, and I think a lot of theory basis that helped me today. That still helped me today. I can't say my education was a waste of time back then because I still use a lot of those skills um, in my job now. But um, rekindling and igniting my passion for community action and Head Start became a no brainer. What was next for me?
0: So case manager was one of your first jobs? That
1: was my first job. Yeah, I had a case managed 40 families down at what we called Lafayette back then, Lafayette Center, um, 416 <laughs> Lafayette Street down like in on State the State south Street? end. Oh, it was right, oh, down, right down by UB. Oh, okay. yeah. um, 40 families and my job was to help them um, create plans and um And not so much educational plans for their children, but um, provide resources for the parents to evolve out of poverty while their child was in Head Start. So whether it was connecting them to employment or um, driver's license or whatever the case may be, we would set these short and long-term goals with parents and literally work side-by-side, hand-in-hand with them for however long their child was in Head Start until what we defined as success happened. And I loved it. Wow. I loved it.
0: And then you went into... T- instructing or what was in
1: so I I've never been interesting enough. I've never been a teacher. Oh, you at became all. an administrator. I became an administrator very quickly. I applied for a management position to run my own childcare site, um, and I got the job. Wow! <laughs> so I ran, um, I operated, oversaw Lucille Johnson, Eight Sixteen Fairfield Avenue, for a, a number of years. Then ABCD had the opportunity to grow. Um, and I was identified as a person who could help that growth process. Um, and all up from there. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Until then. I so
0: got... you were with that early learning for 15 years or Absolutely, so? Absolutely.
1: I was director. I became director five years after just, it was just a short period of time. Wow!
0: Um, what, what were the circumstances that.
1: So the present director um, transitioned out of that position and. Mr. Tisdale came to me one day and he said, you want to run the department? <laughs> I said, yeah. <laughs> you didn't see it coming? I did not, but I knew I could do it.
0: You knew you could do it.
1: I knew I could do it. I not only do it, we can make it better. We can make it stronger. We can make it smarter, whatever that is.
0: Let's, let's take that. You said we could make it better. Absolutely. How do we make it better?
1: So back then there was this huge, there was this undercurrent of, paper used, everything was on paper. And I knew because I was in school and, and the circles that I had traveled in, that data, that computer technology could change things for us, specifically at ABCD. That we were decades behind um, because of use of the lack of the use of technology. Um, and just knew that I could like talk about productivity saving time organizational all this kind of things all these kind of things that would be it was a domino effect if you use technology at certain junctures in the process um so that was one of the things i knew we could use specifically to do better i had an awesome assistant mr Hector burgos for years um i can't even call him as my assistant he's my partner um everything we did, especially had a very keen understanding of technology and process. So if I came up with an idea, he said, all right, let me think about that. Um and I've always been blessed to have people like that around me, even now, um, to have the right people at the right time when I come up with these ideas. Um, and not necessarily seeing I can see the way it looks when it's finished, but I need help developing that process to get there. I've had people around me to help me develop that.
0: When the opportunity presented itself to be executive director of ABCD, how did it happen? What were your thoughts? And how did you proceed?
1: Wow. So um, our executive director was ill and there was um, a need to, to find immediate leadership. Um, it made sense. I was very aware of, of um the issues, not just the issues, but the greatness that lied at ABCD and the staff and in the programs that we developed and the programs that we grew and we knew. Um, and I was given an opportunity. The job was posted. Um, it was a, a nationwide search. Um, and the board put together a search team, a comprehensive search team with the with the outside consultant. And I applied and there were other individuals from all over the country that applied for the job. And I was blessed with the opportunity to run ABCD.
0: And what's your vision for it, for the organization? And what's your concept of ending poverty? Um, this is a, um, an interesting perspective, but some people think that we should be working toward ending poverty and working ourselves out of business. Some people think, no, there will always be a need. I mean, even the Bible and Jesus said it will always be the poor, right? What's your philosophy?
1: So I think it's most important for me to make the biggest impact, Mm -hmm. the biggest splash I can in this pond or in this pool while I'm here. And how do I do that? I do that really with a research-based method, a what works method of how you evolve individuals out of poverty. Everyone doesn't start at the same starting point. Mm Um, it's a blessing to be able to get to know community members, to be a staple in the community like ABCD means that we have the opportunity to meet community members where they are and maybe on a generational, on a generational, um, cycle, if that is. So if, if we didn't get it right with the first generation, we have other opportunities to help evolve that family out of poverty. Um, strategic planning is a big part of my vision to, to use research, to develop that how do you know what you know, Monette, type of methodology. Um, I was able to achieve a doctorate degree in the last few years. Well, a few years ago. Now it's like four years ago. Um, but using, using that knowledge, that research-based knowledge that I gained while getting my doctorate helps me to establish a basis of how to respond and how to resolve problems. And the problem happens to be poverty. So it's my vision not to just... Chip away at it, but to fix what we can here and now because it's been fixed before elsewhere, and then to build on that progress. Some of the things we do, we just can't get out of our own way. You go to a California, a New York, um, a Chicago. They've solved some of these problems. Not completely, because as you said, the poor will always be with us. But they have developed some methods that are perfect for Bridgeport, that are perfect for Norwalk, that are perfect for our community members that just need a hand, a hand up, not the hand out. So that's really my vision for EBCD to become that conduit, to become that um, that road, that journey for individuals to get a few steps further. Than they were before.
0: It seems so wise to use da- data to create a strategy to come up with solutions that are not new but already proven and to bring them here and to lift our community in that fashion. And that's what I'm hearing from you. Um, do you set goals for yourself for Bridgeport? What do you think Bridgeport can be? What do you think the people of Bridgeport can be?
1: I I see, I've experienced, I can't even see, I observe and have experienced greatness amongst these community members. These are the most resilient people. Um, I'm one of those resilient people. Bridgeport, born and raised, right, all day. I tote Bridgeport. And I, having the blessing of running the early learning department, see thousands of children over the last almost 20 years. And by
0: the way, we're not talking just Bridgeport, right? We're talking Norwalk, Westport, Trumbull, Stratford. Right, exactly. Your footprint is expanded.
1: It has. It has. And I didn't mean just, to interrupt no, you, no, but no, I wanted to be fine. clear on that. Absolutely. Um, so to see that resilience, that resiliency um, in community members, I, I know it can be done. It just needs facilitating.
0: <laughs> so that's your responsibility.
1: Absolutely.
0: To whom much is given, much is expected. So you have high expectations of yourself and your organization, I take it. Absolutely. And tell me about. How this is a regional organization now that it's grown beyond uh, the city of Bridgeport and and uh, expanded into Norwalk and you you have services in Monroe and other towns.
1: Absolutely, some of the um, some of the catchment areas we've always been in, but people we haven't been visible and part of. The vision, part of the goal is more visibility. You asked me a little while ago, what Monet? what are your goals? Um, so I have lots every day. Something mm-hmm. gets added to that list. Um, but I think one of, one of the bigger things is visibility and knowing that poverty is not um, assigned to large urban areas. There are pockets of poverty in every town that we serve. Um, but we also know that there are characteristics of poverty that are identical. We know that there are certain groups of folks, there are certain incomes, certain zip codes that experience that a lot more than others. So we have to be cognizant of that, and we have to target that area and those problems.
0: Mm. Um, now, what, uh, what, are your, what's, what ammunition will you use? Um, I guess, first of all, the federal government provides you funding, mm-hmm. number one. Number two, you have great talent in your building. Number three, you have a plan that you're putting forward. Um, So uh, what will we see in the next year or two? What's going to change? Or are you free to talk about the change?
1: Absolutely. Um, (laughs) It's funny you would ask me that. I've been blessed with this awesome marketing firm (laughs) um, that is local and that understands uh, my vision and has – has been able to capture um, the journey, right? And, and what it looks like when we get a little further down the road and what that looks like for us is really using our strategic plan to tackle the top three issues that we know our community members are experiencing. That's employment, education, well, excuse me, employment, housing, and basic needs. So when we say basic needs, that's your uh, food insecurity, that's your uh, utility insecurity. These are things that make it really hard, difficult, day by day for individuals who have to choose between eating or paying their rent. Those are things that ABCD wants to eradicate. Those are those root causes of those things.
0: Um, Do you dare to uh, vision a Bridgeport-like some minority communities down South that are affluent and capable and progressive and accomplished?
1: Absolutely. Um, I don't even think it's a dare. I think it's a must, right? As, as high as I set the bar for myself, I set the same bar for my community because I know we can do it Um, with the right partners, with the right people at the table. There are so many talented, strong individuals. Um, But are we setting the table up to have them at it or, or behind it or whatever the case may be. So I think there's some structural changes that need to be made. There's some cultural changes that need to be made. Um, Sometimes when we keep, you know, the definition of insanity is keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting change. I am here to do it differently.
0: On that note, on that wonderful note, I'd like to say thank you, uh, Dr. Ferguson for joining us. And, um, This has been an eye-opener for me to understand your life. I think hopefully it inspires others to understand um, uh, pathways for other people. So thank you again, and welcome, and come back soon.